Parshat Va'era. Um, we're going to read a, a selection of Psukim. It's just the beginning of chapter Zion. And then we're going to look at the Abarbanel. Uh, and this is a topic that we've spoken about before in passing, but we're going to focus on particularly through the eyes of the Abarbanel today. Uh, and this is, there's no question that what I'm going to say today is not the last word on this subject. So this is a very broad topic um, in terms of theology. What's theology? I use words, I sometimes don't think, of, I'm using the word theology. I expect everyone to understand what it means. What's theology? Theology um, is the logic, the philosophy behind religion. So to the extent that we, there is any logic in faith, and some might argue there is none, um, people of faith want to have some sense of what it is that God expects from us and what it is that God is trying to convey to us. And particularly with the primary document that we call the Torah, which is the first five books of Tanakh, we know how sparing and how careful God was with including narratives and words. Therefore, if there are details in a particular narrative or concept that theologically are challenging, we need to try and understand them. Kabbalists will tell you that there are secrets. The Ramban always says when he comes up against a particularly challenging theological concept, he'll say, well, there's a secret here and not everybody is up to understanding or hearing that particular secret. The Rambam, as you know, Maimonides, was uh, far, far more reluctant to talk about secrets. He wanted to get to the heart of the matter. A Barbanel fluctuates between Ramban and Rambam because he comes from that Spanish school. And Rambam is on the one hand the great um, rationalist theologian, and Ramban, although he obviously is familiar with uh, concepts of philosophy, finds it far easier to talk about uh, Kabbalistic notions of theology. We're going to see here today, in the topic that I've chosen to discuss, that it's extremely important to try and apply these ideas to uh, um, parts of the narrative that we sometimes skip over because we don't quite understand them, but we don't want to delve too deeply into them because we're not sure what we'll find. You know, you don't want to go down, burrow into a particular idea if you're not sure where it's going to lead you. As any good barrister will tell you, don't ask a question in court if you don't know the answer that you're going to get from the witness, right? So a theologian might tell you, don't ask a theological question unless you know the answer that you're going to get when you finally get to the conclusion. Let's look at the psukim at the beginning of chapter 7. God says to Moses, I have made you a Lord, Elohim, literally like a God over Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your speaker, your spokesman. Because remember that, uh, that Moshe Rabbeinu says, not once, but several times, I'm not a great articulator of messages. I'm not a great communicator. In today's world, if he was up for election, I'm not sure how many people would vote for Moshe Rabbeinu. This was not a great orator. He was a great man, but not a great orator. And in the age of TV politics... I'm not sure how well he would have done. And he was conscious of it. He knows how important it is to convey, to, to project. And Aaron, his brother, seems to have been a far better communicator than him. And it was a perfect partnership. Aaron totally defers to Moshe Rabbeinu as the leader and is happy to act as his spokesman and as his right-hand man in negotiations with Pharaoh. 
Ato to daber is kol asher atzaveka. Va'aroin achicha yedaber el paroi v'shilaches bnei Yisrael me'artzei. You shall speak everything that I'm going to command you to say, and Aaron, your brother, will say whatever it is that you need to say to Pharaoh, which principally is that the shilach es b'nei Yisrael me'artzei he should let the children of Israel out of his land. And here we come to the crux of the matter. Va'ani atche es leiv paroi. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Just want to focus on that for a moment. God is telling Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm sending you on a fool's mission. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to ask him for something, and I'm telling you, even before you get there, he's going to say no. Why? Because I will harden his heart. It kind of sounds like he's telling Moshe Rabbeinu, listen, do the job, I'm your boss, it's not going to work, but there's a broader plan here. What's the broader plan? The Pasuk continues, I will increase my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, which means... Pharaoh will not listen to you. As a result of which I will lay my hand upon Egypt. I will take my masses, my people, the children of Israel, from the, out of the land of Egypt, with great judgments. In other words, there is a method to my madness, if I may express it in that way. God is saying, I'm not randomly telling you to go there and his heart will be hardened. And that makes no sense. There is a sense to this plan. And the plan is that I will increase the wonders of God in the land of Egypt, by and eventually I will redeem the people. The Yodu Mitzrayim, and Egypt will know, Ki Ani Hashem, that I am God. Binatoisi es Yodi al Mitzrayim, when I stretch forth my hand over Egypt. Voitseisi es Bnei Yisrael mitoichan, and I redeem the children of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did, as God commanded them, so they did. What is the theological issue that we have here? Free will. Free will. What's going on? Pharaoh should allow the Jewish people out of his land because God has commanded him to do so. Any normal person, I know that the word normal is overused, but any normal person, when confronted with the reality of divine will, is going to immediately give way, right? A normal person, if they are convinced that the divine will is sending them in a particular direction, they will give way, concede, allow themselves to be uh, defeated because they know that the power is with God and that they can never beat that. Okay, I think that, that we can all accept that. Pharaoh, it, would, it sounds like Pharaoh, had he not had his heart hardened, whatever that may mean, we're going to look into that, would have allowed the Jewish people to go. But there's some greater plan here. The plan is that God wants to demonstrate his greatness. And in order to do so, Pharaoh has to refuse to allow the Jews out of Egypt in order so that God's name will be enhanced, made greater. Abarbanel has a bit of a problem with that. Let's look at Abarbanel. 
and he expresses it in various ways and then he's going to look at the way Maimonides deals with it and he's going to be extremely unhappy. He's not happy with the Rambam. Says the Abarbanel, there's only two sources in today's source sheet. Source one, which we've just read, which is the Psukim. Source two is Abarbanel and it stretches from page one to page two. And we're going to go through this Abarbanel. Now, I have abbreviated it, as I always do with Abarbanel, because Abarbanel, generally speaking, is verbose. And I've tried to condense it to the extent that I can so that we can draw the essence of his lessons for our class today. The fact is that the problem with this particular um, passage is evident. Vuhu. Loma Hiksha Hashemis Barach as Pare. Why in heaven's name would God have hardened Pharaoh's heart? In order that he can increase his wonders and his plagues upon Egypt. Let's get real here. We're talking about Egypt. Are we going to convert Egypt to become Jews? No. What is the purpose of the Exodus? The creation of the Jewish nation, so that that nation should become the chosen people and accept the Torah at Mount Sinai. Should we focus on that result or anything else? Surely the result is important, right? It's not the means, it's the end. We must ensure that the Jewish nation is free. Okay, so let's think of it. In, uh, I'm going to rewrite the narrative for you. I'm going to paint a totally different picture for you. The Abarbanel does it, but I'm going to express it in this way. Moshe Rabbeinu knocks on Pharaoh's door, walks arm in arm with Aaron into Pharaoh's um, throne room, into his, the center of his activities, the international headquarters of Pharaoh Incorporated. And he says, Mr. Pharaoh, I'd like my people to be set free. And Pharaoh says, who are you? I'm Moses. Who do you represent? I represent God Incorporated. Oh, well, God Incorporated is much bigger than Pharaoh Incorporated. No problem. Sign here. Let's put the contract together and tomorrow the Jewish people can go. And the next day, the Jewish people are freed and they leave Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai and they receive the Torah. Is that such a bad thing? What are you talking about? It would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely amazing. Here we have Pharaoh Incorporated, the biggest conglomerate on earth, allowing God to take control of the situation. And his representative, Moshe Rabbeinu, has come into the palace. How shocking is this? It's, it's, it's startling. Moshe Rabbeinu, without any effort whatsoever, has managed to convince the most powerful man on earth to allow a slave nation to be freed and for them to have their own Torah, their own religion, their own identity, their own nationality. That is an amazing achievement. Why would you want to delay that even for a moment? Why would you want to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he says no, so that you've got plagues? I know it's a lot of fun at the Seder. We read the plagues. We have four cups of wine. It's a wonderful thing. Fine. You know what? I wouldn't have a Seder every year. But those people wouldn't have continued to be in slavery for the amount of time it took for the ten plagues to happen. And by the way, tons of Egyptians wouldn't have been affected. And none of the firstborns would have died. Why is that such a bad thing? Do you see that alternate reality? Like, you know, sometimes it's like it's, it's a good idea to think of what it might have been had it been different. Why should it be that Pharaoh's heart needs to be hardened in the way that it is, it is expressed here? so that the story unfolded in the way that it did. It doesn't make much sense. That's the question Abarbanel poses to us. It's a slightly different question than the theological 
question which we began with, which is free will, as Cecile said. The free will idea is in, in and of itself a, a complex theological notion. But even without going into that side of things, why would the narrative need to unfold in the way that we know it did, that we're so familiar with? And by the way, how, how often have I said, our biggest problem with the Torah, with Bible stories, is that we know the story too well. We're so used to the story, it's like a, a well-worn slipper, right? We're so familiar with the story that sometimes we, we, we're like entranced by the story that we don't consider alternative realities. But the alternative reality is that Pharaoh could have immediately allowed the Jewish people to go, and that would have been miraculous enough, as it were, in and of itself. Why do we have to have this, or why did this alternative version, the version that actually happened, happen? Continues Abarbanel, would have been so wonderful had Pharaoh listened to Moshe's voice. When Moshe comes with his, with his job that God had given him, and he would have sent the Jews out of Egypt. He wouldn't have resisted in any way, fashion or form from redeeming them from slavery. And if you're going to suggest that for some reason that we don't as yet understand that God hardened his heart, that's a theological issue. If it's true that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, why is he deserving of all the punishments that he received and that his country received? After all, and this is the free will question. If he lacked free will, he is not deserving of punishment. Why punish someone if they've done nothing wrong? Because that which they have done wrong was compelled upon them. For example, we know that if somebody forces you to eat non-kosher food, you're not culpable for that sin. Of course you're not. Why would you be? You had no choice in the matter. So if that's the case, why would Pharaoh be culpable for something that God himself compelled him to do? It says it. Look at the posuk. It's in source number one. What does it say? Va'ani aksha eslev paroi. And it's repeated throughout the narrative of the ten plagues. I, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Thank you very much. You've just given him a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because why would you um, punish someone for doing something that you made him do? Continues Abarbanel. Surely... The fact that the Pasukim say so explicitly and without equivocation that Pharaoh's position on the matter of redeeming the Jews from slavery and letting them free so that they can go and pursue their own national identity and national journey, his refusal to allow them out of his country was compelled upon him by God. So why punish him? On what basis... What is the platform for treating him as the villain of the story? That is the question posed by Barbanel. And as I have said, it's not a question that we're hearing here today for the first time. We've discussed it before. No doubt we will discuss it again. But we're going to address it through the eyes of Barbanel, this incredible Torah commentary. Um, yeah, to Don, do you know who Don Isaac Barbanel was? He was an advisor to the king of Spain. And one day, the king and queen of Spain decided they don't like Jews anymore. And they're going to expel them. This was in 1492. And he was expelled. This incredibly successful, very wealthy, very educated 
erudite, rabbinic and civil leader of the Jews, who was associated with the civil leadership of Spanish people, not just Spanish Jews, was expelled from his own country, the country of his birth, Spain, in 1492. He went to Portugal and eventually he ended up in Italy. <coughs> and he was obviously at a bit of a loose end. And he wrote this commentary on the Torah. Occasionally he discusses his own personal circumstances and the difficult situation that he found himself in. So he's a, um, a late 15th century, early 16th century commentary who relies on the heritage of Spanish Jewish rabbinic scholarship. And he now reproduces the um, idea of the Rambam, of Maimonides, in terms of this theological conundrum. The great Maimonides, in his introduction to Meseches Oves, we call it Shmoina Parakim, the eight chapters, of the Sefer Hamada, and also in his Sefer Hamada, Kosav Bichuvalazer. This is what he writes in response to somehow offer a, some kind of rationale for what we've just described, as follows it's possible that a person will sin in a great way until such time as the Dayan HaEmes, the ultimate judge, the true judge, God, will judge him. He has to now um, pay up, as it were. Uh, he has to uh, be held responsible for the things that he has done willingly against God and God will judge him so interesting God wants people to do teshuva but sometimes the sin is so bad that even teshuva is not going to help right that's what the Rambam is saying. Even, even teshuva isn't enough. Somehow, that which you have done is so terrible and so bad, so heinous, that even teshuva isn't going to be helpful. God says, you know what? You're not worthy of living anymore. You must die. You're presence in the world is such a scar that even Teshuvah is not going to assist you. And it says in the Torah, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because he sinned from his own free will. In other words, it was self-generated and he caused such anguish to Israel who were living in his land. And so too it is with Sichon and Oig. This is towards the end of Devarim. These two kings who did everything they could to undermine the Jewish nation, to thwart their attempts to get into the promised land. There are points in history where God, and it's recorded, says the Rambam, God will create a situation where the people who are that bad that they need to be punished will be, as it were, strengthened and fortified in their badness so that they can be punished with the punishment that is due to them. That is the case with Pharaoh and that is the case with Sichon and Oig. That's what the Rambam says, that they are worthy of punishment. And if that's the case, no amount of teshuva will help them 
And God simply removes that possibility, that ability to repent, recant from those people so that they can get their due punishment. Don't forget, your neshama is something that's given to you in complete perfection, says Maimonides. And you return it to God if it's so heavily damaged that it requires some type of purification process in Olam Haba, in the other world, by allowing people to teshuva, you are misleading them because their soul is still damaged and teshuva will not be able to change that. Yes. Sichon and Oig, the two kings at the end of, of Devarim, Moshe Rabbeinu encounters two kings who are defiant of, uh, of the Jewish nation's divinely um, uh, ordained mission to take over the promised land. And they, they won't allow them to go into their country and they battle them. And Moshe Rabbeinu is absolutely, uh, you know, uh, determined to destroy them. And the Rambam says that they also, and it's, it's mentioned in the Psukim, that they also had this like Pharaoh-like ability to withstand what was obviously a divinely ordained plan. And how is that even possible? How do we understand that? Remember the word, theologically. We're trying to get to the bottom of Jewish theology. If it's true that someone can do teshuva, why is it that these people weren't given the opportunity to behave as they should? Continues Abarbanel. We're still on page one. Remember what I said earlier? That the Rambam and the Ramban, even though they're coming from different angles, were the sources of theological inspiration for Abarbanel, very rarely does he break from either the Rambam or the Ramban. So his first go-to place is the Rambam. Occasionally he goes to the Ramban. But the idea that he would reject both the Rambam and the Ramban, Ramban is inconceivable, it would seem. This is one of those rare cases. So he says the Ramban says a similar idea to the Rambam in this the situation to explain this theological puzzle. According to these two great rabbis, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was the prevention that God put in place from him doing teshuva mimenu, so that he can be, as it were, given the proper consequences for the sins that he had committed. Otherwise, he will not have those consequences and his sin will not be forgiven. V'hadeo hazeh, says that Barbanel, who etzli zor v'koshe ma'oid. I don't know if Barbanel considered himself to be a great theologian, but theologically, he could not reconcile himself to this idea that someone is prevented from doing teshuva. He simply couldn't allow himself to think that a human being who essentially is put here in this world against his will is prevented from repenting for sins that they have committed as a result of them not being angels. Your neshama is put inside a human body and that gives you the capacity for sin. And sin is not measured by the sin. It's measured in terms of the fact that you have sinned. And we are given the opportunity of doing teshuva. How is it that both the Rambam and the Ramban reject the notion of teshuva when it comes to Pharaoh? And as we've heard, Sichon and Oig. Doesn't make any sense. Zor strange, the koshem and extremely difficult. That's what Abarbanel, that's his verdict on Maimonides and Nachmanides. Kafi Masha 
Limdunu hanaviyim midrochav shel HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What have the prophets taught us about the ways of God? What is it that we have learnt through the messages of the Nevi'im, the prophets in Tanakh? What is the underpinning of Jewish theology as we know it from Hebrew scripture? Ki kulam navu echad, each one of them, every single one of the prophets that is recorded in Nevi'im says the same thing as if with one mouth, that there's no such thing as an evil man who will die if he has taken the opportunity to do teshuva then he will live that is the power of teshuva it's not Elul at the moment we're not in anticipation of Tishri but we know what the power of teshuva is Teshuva is so powerful that even the evil have an opportunity to do Teshuva. Don't worry, we're going to deal with every aspect of this topic, hopefully, through Abar Benel. Benemar, Shuvu Bonim Shavavim, Arape Mishuvay Seichem. This is Jeremiah. By the way, you can find numerous references to Teshuva throughout throughout Novi, throughout the prophets, the concept of teshuva is central to our understanding of our relationship with God. Yes. That's one of his answers. That's one of Abarbanel's answers is he says there's some differentiation between Jews and non-Jews. Let's, let's put it slightly differently, between monotheists and pagans, okay? But, but we're going to get there. He's just, he's, at the moment, he's simply unhappy with the idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened as a way of preventing him from doing teshuva. How dare you, is, is really what he's saying, okay? How dare you? Yes, that's a Gemara in, in Chagiga about Acher, about his saying that ultimately I can't do Teshuvah, but right. all the Mepharshim there say that Acher was wrong. So Acher was wrong. Yes. So Every one of the Mepharshim there says Acher was wrong. That is part of the Yetzirah of somebody who doesn't do Teshuvah. It's not going to help me. Okay, we have great theological issues. I mean, you know, could Hitler have done Teshuvah? It's a terrible thing to say. Right? I mean, how many members of my family and families of people here were murdered by Hitler? Hitler is Pharaoh. He's a modern Pharaoh. Could Hitler have done Teshuvah? It's a very scary thought. So, uh, in terms of Shamayim, I would hope that he would have the opportunity of doing Teshuvah. But in terms of humankind, not. And we see the Rambam says that, for, you know, I, I, we're going to get to it, but for Rambam, the Rambam says that when it comes to certain crimes, only death is teshuva. As long as you use it as an opportunity, as a platform for teshuva, which I doubt that Hitler would ever have done. But I'm, I'm just saying, conceptually, you know, whenever you're trying to understand any topic, it doesn't matter if it's theology or law or accountancy, you always go to the extreme, okay? We look at extremes to understand the general rules. Also, been a kindness, right? Because if Pharaoh, if he went through so much pain, right? He loses his kingdom, he loses his son. Yes. Right? Yes. And the pain, no, but in other words, if he hadn't gone through all of that, he might end up worse. Worse off when he gets to Shemaim. Correct. Because it wouldn't have been. But you remove the opportunity. By the way, this is such an important question because we, we, we have this question on, on the most basic level. You, know, you remove people's freedoms. Do we put people in jail? Do we create situations where people never have the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves? You've, you've kind of, you, you've taken away his free will. That's what Cecile said right at the beginning. You, it, you know, it's fundamental to the human condition that free will is your right. How do you remove Pharaoh's free will? So you're saying it's to his benefit. That sounds very Victorian. You know, it's like, I'll impose what I think is good for you. Remember, I don't want to mention which president 
who said, but you know who I'm talking about, I know what's good for Israel better than Israel knows what's good for Israel. Thank you very much. I don't need your opinion. Uh, let me make my own mistakes, right? The, do you understand the idea that Pharaoh has the right to make mistakes? Or, by the way, not make mistakes. Imagine Moshe would have walked in there and said, let my people go. Who are you? I'm Moshe Rabbeinu. Who do you represent? I represent God. No problem. Sign on the dotted line. They can all leave tomorrow. Wouldn't that have been amazing? But who says that that wouldn't have been enough of a cleansing that, you know, that he would have, once he knew he was up against God, if he would have let the Jewish nation go without the makos? What do you mean? Who cares? Well, is this, is this a, a, you know, a, what they call a light and sound show? It's not Hollywood. Cecil B. DeMille. Let's do some great stuff. The Ten Plagues. We're here. I'm here till Thursday. I mean, come on. What, what is this about? All right. So, so we really need to understand. So, I think that what the Abarbanel is getting at, so the the underlying theme here is, what did Pharaoh do wrong, and how was he going to be able to get out of that situation, and how did this particular aspect? of his heart being hardened by God, play into whatever the dynamic was. And he's not happy with the Rambam's pshat. And the Ramban agrees with the Rambam. So he's now left, you know, he's, he's left at sea without, a, without what, what's the expression? He's, he's uh, without whatever it is, he's complete. I mean, his two oars, he's got one oar in his right hand called the Rambam, another oar in his left hand called the Ramban. He's, he literally has no way of, of resolving this. He comes up with three answers. Let's, let's continue. He says as follows. In Tehillim it says, Another quotation which talks about the importance of the ability of Teshuva. And he says the Rambam himself has contra contradicted his own version in his own book. In he talks about people who do not have a portion in the world to come. He says at the end of that piece, What am I talking about? When somebody dies without having repented, if he does repent, he recants his sins, umes, and then he dies. This is someone who can go into heaven. There's no thing that stands in the way of repentance. Somebody who's a complete heretic denies the existence of God. His entire life. And the end of his life, he returns, he recants, he says God does exist. However small it may be, he has a portion in the world to come. And he quotes a posuk in Yeshaya to prove it. The and similarly, the Rambam writes about the 24 things that prevent someone from doing Teshuvah and Hilchus Teshuvah. You have the opportunity to return to God even one day before your death. Pharaoh, it would appear, at least to Abar had the ability of doing tshuva removed from him, that seems extremely unfair. It makes no sense whatsoever theologically. This is a theological discussion. How can I be a Jew and simply sit there and nod my head about Pharaoh's heart being hardened? It doesn't make any sense. Why should I have the opportunity as a Jew of doing tshuva and Pharaoh had no opportunity of repenting and recanting? Says Barbanel, this is the first of three answers that he gives to this. He A person may have 
brought upon himself terrible consequences as a result of some of the things that he may have done against God. The Yenotzel Mehem, and he does tshuva. He regrets them. He's very sorry for them. He does tshuva. I shouldn't have gone and eaten bacon and eggs every morning for the last 38 years. It's a terrible thing because it says in the Torah, I'm not allowed to eat pork. That's what it says, right? We all agree. Bacon and eggs every morning. I had crispy bacon and eggs for 38 years. 14 days and 12 hours. And now I'm very, very sorry and I'm doing teshuva. What does Hashem say? Do you mean it? You really mean it? You're upset? I'm never going to eat bacon again. I'm sorry I ever ate bacon. I believe in you, Hashem. I don't know why I did it. I'm so, so sorry. What's, what is the platform of teshuva? What do, we, what do we say? It works, right? I'm very sorry. It works. Please chorate. He did it. Hashem's not angry with you anymore. But there's a different type of Avera. By the way, the Rambam talks about this. There's a different type of Avera. What's it called? It's a social sin. How do you treat other people? By the way, when you eat bacon, does it affect anybody else? No one. It's something that's on your plate and it goes into your mouth and into your tummy. That's totally fine. Because God can forgive you for something that you've done. You've desecrated his name. It's between you and him. But what about between you and all the people around you? Bein Adam lechaveray. Says the Barbanel. Shebaasois oisom ha'odom afshi yichanein lefonav yisbarach loyavarach ha'tosoi veleyislachalai. I'm going to say, God, I'm so sorry that I mistreated this person for 38 years and 14 days and 12 hours. What's Hashem going to say to him? Oh, how can he forgive him for that? It's got nothing to do with me. Did you say sorry to that person? 38 years, a long time. Listen, I'm a very nice guy, God says. I'll forgive you for the bacon eating. But who says that that person has the same feeling towards you as I have towards you? Have you said sorry? Have you done teshuva to that person? Imagine I came to Beisdin. Let's call it a court of law. So that we can have a generic term. I come to court and I'm a murderer. I killed somebody. I took out a gun. And I shot somebody in cold blood. I come to court. And the court decides, based on the evidence, that there's no question about it, he killed someone. Do you have anything to say? Yes, I've got something to say. I'm so sorry. I wish I would never have done it. Imagine the court would say, you know, we really believe you. We forgive you. You don't have to go to jail. You're not going to get the death penalty. You're crazy. What right does I have a court, a court of law have to do that? What, what, what right? To sugar! He did teshuva. He said sorry. He meant it. I know for sure we have a teshuva measurer, a teshuva detector that we can connect with all kinds of probes. We can connect him to a teshuva detector. We know he's done teshuva. Does it help? No. Well, what would happen? It completely undermines the system. We have a system of justice which, for which people have to pay for their sins. If somebody is convicted as being a killer, they get killed. If you're a thief and you've been found guilty of theft, you've got to pay. I'm sorry, I come to Beisdin. You know, how much did you steal? I was in charge of a Ponzi scheme and Baruch Hashem, I managed to steal $14 million. But I'm very, very sorry. They connect him to the teshuva detector and they find out, find out that he's really, really sorry. Don't worry, you don't have to pay back the money. What are you talking about? Why would you not have to pay back the money? Oh, no, no, he did teshuva. It doesn't help. He still stole the money. He has to pay back the money. What is teshuva? 
Teshuvah is only at the level of a sin which is between man and God. It's not between a sin between individuals on this world. There's even sins against God which don't have the opportunity of Teshuvah. Somebody who's desecrated God's name. I would argue, by the way, that this is a Beinodem Lechaveri, Beinodem Lemokim. What happens if somebody gets up in a public space on TV, they're interviewed on CNN, and they're considered to be one of the great religious figures of the time. It's a rabbi, it's a priest, it's whoever it is. They interview him, do you believe in God? No, God doesn't exist. How many people were watching at that moment? Eight million people were watching. And he comes off air, and the people are with him, are you crazy? What have you done? You've just said that God doesn't exist. You're meant to be a religious, inspirational figure. You've said that God doesn't exist. He says, you know what, you're right. I'm very, very sorry. I do teshuva. He goes to daven. He never daven with such kavanah in his life. He says to Hashem, it's been Odom Lamakim. It's heresy. I would argue it's not heresy. It's been Odom Lachavera. You have removed the opportunity of anybody of the people of the 8 million audience believing in God. You're meant to be this inspirational religious figure and you've just denied God's existence. Says the Rambam, And this is a quotation from the Gemara. There's nothing on this world that can cleanse you of that sin of heresy. The only opportunity that you have for teshuva is if you, if you pass away, if you die. Says Abarbanel, teshuva only helps. Those sins which people commit against each other, I called it earlier social sins, are not given over, as it were, for cleansing any punishment that a court of law can, um, can execute against a person, for example, uh, capital punishment, they've been abolished. What's a murderer going to do? It's perfect. This is a perfect scenario for a sociopath. He can go out, kill whoever he wants, and he can say afterwards, I did teshuva. I'm fine, because we know that teshuva works. He's going to rush off to shul, he's going to dove and give stock, and everything's going to be fine. With all his heart, to prevent himself from falling into this terrible situation, so he won't be due to for capital punishment. The Torah is very explicit. The Torah doesn't say that uh, it's okay for a murderer to do tshuva and then he'll be fine. It says, We should remove this evil from your midst. The So that the whole world, this is a deterrent, will see, will hear, and they will know that this is wrong. These types of sins do not open themselves up to any kind of of repentance. You see where he's going with this. Let's look at Pharaoh, the great pagan of ancient history, the leader of the known world, the man who acted as a shining example of paganism and God denial in the ancient world. Do you might say, what's his great sin? God denial, paganism. He's a pagan. Says Abarbanel, it's not just that he sinned against, that's fine. I'm fine. I mean, we get it. And if he does Teshuvah, I'm a great pagan. And tomorrow morning, I'm no longer a pagan. I believe in Hashem. I've become a monotheist. I believe in Hashem. That would have been an incredible, an incredible situation. But that's not the only thing he did. What else did he do? Avogamli Yisrael Asachomos Godel. 
This was a man who perpetrated great crimes against the Jewish nation. Even though God said they're going to be strangers in a strange land and they're going to be subjugated by the people who live there. Pharaoh took that baton and he ran with it much further than he should have. He created extraordinarily wicked punishments against the Jews. He did terrible things to them. He killed their children for God's sake. Look at what Pharaoh did to the Jewish nation. That's not paganism. That's wicked despotism. That's a wicked dictator, a murderer, a genocidal lunatic. That's who Pharaoh was. That's what it meant when we said, when God said to Avraham Avinu, to Abraham, that nation which in which you you're going to find yourself under their jurisdiction i will judge them on their actions how they behave towards you if they behave wickedly towards you they will be punished and as a result of the fact that pharaoh and his entire nation sinned against israel it is totally appropriate that they should be punished with plagues but isis with wonders of a with miracles because of their many many wicked acts says that and this is the theological underpinning of hardening pharaoh's heart moses walks into the palace hello moses what are you doing here God wants you to set the Jewish nation free. No problem here. Let's make the arrangement tomorrow morning. They all go free. What's going to happen with all the sins that he committed against the Jewish nation? They're not going to be addressed. Okay, it's wonderful. He's now the leader of the known world has said that God's people can go free. But there's a big check that he has to pay. How is he going to pay that check? God has to give him the ability to withstand the request of Moses so that he can be punished and get his due uh, um, uh, as, as a result of the terrible things he had done against the nation. They must be punished for the terrible things they've done. They're murderers. They can go to court and say, I'm very sorry. It doesn't mean that they're going to be set free. It's not enough. That's not Teshuvah. That doesn't go against that which the prophet said that a wicked man, in, even in the last moment, can repent and recant and become a God believer and they will be forgiven and live. Because that's only talking about those aspects of religious faith which are between you and your Creator, between you and God. That's what it's talking about. Not um, as far as those uh, things that people have done, which need to have judgment and need to have punishment. That says Abarbanel is the first answer. Let's look at the second answer. You know that one of the hardest aspects of theology to really absorb is that it's not tit for tat. You do this, you get that. Right? You know, it's a, like a vending machine model. I put the quarter in, and at the bottom, the Diet Coke comes out. Right? You, everyone heard of the vending machine model? That's not theology. You know, you know sometimes, you put, has it ever happened to you? You put in 
you put in money in the vending machine, nothing comes out, right? And then you put in again, it still doesn't come out. You go complain, and they're busy with something else. And you've wasted $2, $3, or sometimes you go to the vending machine, you didn't put any money in, and you open the flap, and so there's a Diet Coke there. Is it fair? I don't know what fair is, but it's nothing to do with fair. It doesn't always work. The vending machine model doesn't always work. If it was so simple, there would be no, no such thing as theology. If we knew that every time we did X, the result would be Y, it's just a mathematical equation, where's the room for faith? There's no room for faith. Says Abar Benel, for Amnon, Trufas ha he chesed elyon. What is the whole concept of teshuva? We got every Yom Kippur, we daven, we fast, we come here to shul and we, we repent. And we think to ourselves, okay, it should work, right? I put the court in the machine, it should work. Why should it work? Not everything works. Why should it work? To chesed. God has a loving kindness for his people. And he is, he is created... It's almost anomalous, it's strange that God has created an opportunity for us to do teshuva and it works. Should it work? Don't know, not necessarily. Maybe it shouldn't work. Maybe sometimes teshuva works and sometimes teshuva doesn't work. Why should it be that it always works? That is a chesed of Hashem, it's God's kindness that he says that we have the opportunity, if we mean it, to do teshuva. We don't have to say three Hail Marys. We just have to do teshuva and mean it. That's, that's a chesed of Hashem. Chesed elyoid mehokel yizborach meyuchid la'amoy v'nachlosa Yisrael. Do you know who, who benefits from this? His chosen nation. We who have been given 613 mitzvahs and everything that surrounds those mitzvahs, we have been given the opportunity of occasionally making mistakes, and if we mean it, to do teshuva. That's our special gift. We under his private wing, as it were. At all times, Yeshua love, we can return to him, the Ikru line call out to him, with all our hearts, with all our souls, the Yishma Kale, the Anaim, and God will listen and will respond accordingly. It's not necessarily true that every other nation and every other individual from the nations has that same opportunity of doing teshuva. They're not part of the chosen nation. They didn't get the Torah. They didn't accept upon themselves the burden of faith actions so that they can be forgiven when they do teshuva. It's not your right. That's what the Barbanel is saying. You don't have the right to teshuva. If you're part of the Jewish nation, because you've there's this aspect of all the burden of responsibility that you have. You have the other side, which is the opportunity to do teshuva. But all those people who don't have those burdens, they don't have that opportunity in the, quite the same way. They're pagans. They don't even worship God. Who wouldn't knock on someone's door to ask for forgiveness in a situation of great need? Where were they last week? Nah, we're not your friends last week. We don't care about you last week. We didn't need you. Oh, now we need you. Now I'm knocking on your door. That doesn't work. What is somebody who's a pagan who comes to say to Hashem, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. It's like, metaphorically speaking, somebody who goes into the mikveh and he's holding something impure in his hands. What are you talking about? You're, you're a pagan. You don't believe in me. This is just a plea of convenience. That doesn't work. These are not people who are returning to God with everything that they have. Paray was the greatest pagan of his era. He and his entire nation. They were not worthy of God accepting their repentance. The fact that they're going to recant and say, no, we didn't mean it. We didn't. 
ושיהיה בכלל ומודה ואוזב ירוחם מאחר שלא יאוזב אוזב אבוידס אלוהי קוב אלוהי הוב. They never abandoned their pagan faith. What now we should give them the opportunity of doing teshuva? Says Abarbanel. It's a very scary thought, right? If we are God deniers, we don't have that opportunity of teshuva. Pharaoh is the ultimate example to the extent that God hardened his heart. But every one of us, if we have doubts about God, we haven't worked on our commitment, our faith commitment, to the extent that we should be worthy of teshuva. Don't just expect that you daven to Hashem and everything's going to be okay. There's conditions attached to that benefit. Terms and conditions. Did you click in the box on the internet? Right? Mm-hmm. You have to click in the box. You agree to the terms and conditions. The tshuva has terms and conditions. Pharaoh never, never clicked in that box. That's for sure. He never put a check in that box of terms and conditions that applied to the tshuva process. To the extent that, that God used him as an example. V'chazik es liboy no, no, where are we? Paroi shoi over avoidus koichovim hu, vachal amoi, him and his entire nation, loyoroi shi kablu ashemis barach bichuva, that he was not worthy that God should accept his repentance, vashia bichlal, umoidev oizev yurucha me achashele oizev avoidus eloihov, vazuhia chuva base. That's the third, second answer. Let's look at the third answer. And then we will. We will be concluded. I know I've gone on a little longer, but a fascinating Abarbanel. You'll agree. He says, This is the one, the third answer is the one I like best of all. That which it says that Pharaoh, his heart was hardened, and by Sichain and Oig, etc that their hearts were, were pushed away, that they shouldn't listen to the words of Moshe. It's real. It's like, a, it's like a physical thing, right? That somehow they were given the strength of character that they could resist the word of God through Moshe's mouth. What is it? This is unbelievable. He says some people... The more resistance you put up against them, the more you punish them, the more they are stubborn in, ter- in, the f- in face of adversity. I'm going to prove that I can withstand anything you throw against me. What happened with, with Pharaoh? I mean, what would happen if it happened to us? Every... Um, water that we have turns to blood. Whatever that means, I'm not going to try and explain that plague. But on the, on the, on the, uh, just on a surface level, there's no drinking water in the country. It was predicted by Moshe Rabbeinu. What are you going to do? Your pare. I mean, obviously, it's God, right? I mean, there was drinking water yesterday. There's no drinking water today, and the next day also not. What are you going to say? You're going to say, clearly this guy is representing God because he managed to destroy all the drinking water in the entire country. He says, no, no, no. The plague ended. Therefore, it's not a proper plague. If it was a proper plague, it wouldn't have ended. Like you come up with a rationale to explain why it is that it happened. Are you crazy? The entire country has had nothing to drink, hasn't had a bath for a week. And you're saying, no, 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 I can explain it, everything's going to be fine. What does that mean? That you have built up a level of resistance in yourself that you can withstand anything that's thrown against you. Says Abarbanel, do you know what it means? Not that he, as it were, God, personally gave Paroi the ability to withstand it. He didn't harden his heart. It wasn't some false external imposition. He knew that the great signs that would emerge from the Makkos would be as a result of the fact 
that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened through the Makos. The Makos themselves generated Pharaoh's ability to withstand God. The more God threw at him, the more he resisted God's presence. And that, he said, ultimately, when the Jewish nation is redeemed and released, they go through the Exodus process, is going to be the greatest miracle of all. Because you will have shown him up to be completely false. There's nothing to him. Who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh who withstood me, with, who was able to withstand everything I threw at him, turned out to be nothing, a meaningless shadow. Because my miracles were more powerful, my ability to redeem my nation was so much stronger, so much more impressive. In other words, one of the abilities of somebody who denies God is the ability to withstand any sign of God's existence. This is very powerful stuff, because this is written in an age before atheism. What is the great fallacy of atheism? It doesn't matter what you tell them about faith. They'll always say, ah, it can be explained. I still don't believe in God. You know, the great um, atheist Christopher Hitchin, I don't know if you've ever watched his debates on TV, he debated a number of people. So he, he died of cancer. And during the process of his um, cancer treatment, they said to him, you know, there's no such thing as an atheist in the foxhole. Are you still an atheist? I is a militant atheist. Even more so, even as I've got cancer, it strengthened my atheism. I, I believe even more that there isn't a God. That's Pare. If you want to understand Pare, says Abarbanel, Christopher Hitchin is Pare. The more adversity you throw at them, the more they want to believe there is no God the more God's glory is going to be expressed in the world, as was the case with the exodus from Egypt. We'll leave it here for today.